0: A lot of people have been asking how they can support the show, and honestly, the easiest way, and maybe the most effective, is to go on iTunes and subscribe and rate us. That's probably the single most important thing you can do to help the show. Thanks to those of you who have already done it, and those of you who are doing it right now. Now let's get to the show. I have always been afraid of the dark, and although it's gotten better through the years, as a kid... I was petrified. I slept with the blankets over my head and my face toward the wall. I couldn't bear to even look at the dark corners of my bedroom, or face the infinite possibilities of rooms with no lights on. When I was about 10, a couple of friends and I were having a sleepover in one of their parents' RVs. It was parked in the driveway, and we'd brought out a television and a Nintendo 64. It got late, as it always did during sleepovers. And instead of the usual hushed exuberance and eventual crash, we got bold. There were no parents here, I think we thought. They are in the house, we are in the RV. We don't have rules tonight. One of my friends, or maybe it was me, suggested that we venture out of the RV and into the neighborhood. So, of course, away we went. Three ten-year-old boys under a clear Wisconsin summer sky, wandering the country neighborhood, under the terrifying infinite cosmos. I didn't enjoy myself that night. I still live with the nagging fear of unseen threats in the shadow, even now as a 30-year-old man. Although I don't sleep with my blankets covering my face anymore, I do find myself hurrying across the dark apartment late some nights, my back tingling in anticipation, of those claws ready to reach out and grab me. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, two stories of things that bump in the night. In the first, the cat with no legs, a family deals with the death of a pet cat. In the second, dark at night, the stars stop shining. Death and dying are the threshold between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Phantom Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. The cat had no legs when I found it. A coyote was my first thought, but why would a coyote only take the legs? Plus, we were in the middle of the suburbs. Maybe it was the kids that were throwing rocks at that stray dog last week. Maybe. I wasn't even supposed to be home yet. Normally, my wife Vicky gets home a couple hours before me, but today I had a doctor's appointment. After lunch, and took the rest of the afternoon off to deal with the dead bush in the front of our house. When I asked the woman next door if she saw anything or knew anything about the cat with no legs, she shook her head and eased the door closed in my face. That's okay. She's got a newborn in the house, and it was probably rude of me to ring the bell. Mr. Williams, across the street, didn't know anything either. I used some rubber gloves to pick the thing up and put it in a garbage bag. The smell hit me while I tied the bag shut, and when I passed the mail guy on the way to the trash can, all I could do was shake my head in response to his hello. The bush came out with a little bit of lower body strength, and Vicky pulled up just as I was sweeping the last of the dirt off the porch. I told her about the cat, and she was sad but more concerned about how Henry, our eight-year-old son would react. It was his cat, after all. We made love for the last time that afternoon, before I got started on dinner, and she cleaned up the living room. When Henry was dropped off after baseball practice, I asked him if he knew anything about the cat. I didn't expect he did, and when he said that no he didn't, I told him the cat had gone to live somewhere else, and after some crying and squawking, we ate dinner as a family, and Vicky and I finally got Henry into bed around 9 after the 4th or 5th crying fit, and we listened to NPR and folded clothes and fell asleep around 10. The noise started that night. I wake up a lot to use the bathroom. Small bladders must run in my family, and Vicky tells me I shouldn't drink so much water at night, but I still guzzle a glass pretty much every time I get up, and that definitely doesn't help. Sliding back into bed is when I noticed it. At first I thought it was just Vicky's breathing, but after a moment of concentration, I knew I could hear something in the wall at the head of our bed, scratching. Just scratching. But not like a mouse might scratch. A slow, steady, regular scratch. Right at the head of our bed. I fell back asleep listening to it, and woke up in a cold sweat from dreams I don't remember. The cat was back on our porch when I left for work the next morning. Hell of a way to start a Friday. When I told Vicky, she wanted to call the police. Two nights in a row, someone puts our dead cat on the porch of our house. Someone's trying to threaten us. I told her to calm down. There was nothing to worry about. It was just some dumb kids. My excuse turned into a row at dinner. Henry was confused, and Vicky sent him away so she could tell me just how stupid I was being. I told her I just didn't want to draw attention to the situation by getting the police involved. The neighbors would talk, and what about Henry? What would he think? Vicky didn't talk to me for the rest of the evening. When the scratching started up again that night, I tried to ignore it and was mostly successful. But what the hell was it? Rats? Mice? I saw a television show once that possums had moved into someone's walls. Maybe it was possums. Whatever it was, it was keeping me up. Could Vicki not hear it? The next morning was pleasant enough, Saturdays always are. We were in a bit of a rush trying to get out the door into Henry's little league game, but we got there in time and got to see him do his thing. He's the star of the team, and I'm not just saying that because I'm his dad. His team won. I'd sooner forget the whole thing with the cat, but it turned up on our doorstep again that night. Vicky found it, when she answered the door for our friends, Whitney and Sean. It was dug out of the trash can, rotting and reeking. We said sorry about a dozen times, and I think they were confused because it's not like we put it there so why would we apologize for it? We told them about the first two times, and now that it was a pattern, they suggested we call the police. I insisted it was just some stupid kids having a go at us, and Vicky half-heartedly agreed. It's not like we were in any danger. The Johnsons brought their son, Chris, and he and Henry ran off to Henry's room to play. The Johnsons, Vicky, and I, shared some wine and some beer. The boys weren't making any noise, and I think the four of us just really enjoyed the peace and quiet. Whitney Johnson told us the story about how she almost died on a business trip to Buffalo last winter. She got caught in some crazy winter storm and almost froze to death because she didn't really pack for it. Sean told a few jokes, and we had a couple more beers. And then I realized. The boys were being much too quiet. I got up from the couch and excused myself. All I wanted to do, really, was check in on the boys and make sure they weren't getting into too much trouble. That's what silence from two boys always meant. Trouble. I crept down the hall, toward Henry's room, trying to hear any indication of what they were up to in there. The door was closed, and I couldn't really hear anything through it, but I noticed there was no light shining out from under it. Was the light off? I pressed my ear to the door and listened, crying. I pushed the door open and flipped on the light. Chris was standing at the far side of the room facing the wall, head down, sobbing. I didn't see Henry anywhere. I strode over to Chris and turned him around. It was obvious he'd been crying for some time, and when I asked him where Henry was, he didn't answer. I asked him why he was standing against the wall, and still, he just sobbed, quietly. I stood up and told him to stay still while I went to get his parents, and that's when he finally spoke up. The happy man told me to stand there. The police were at our house 15 minutes later. The police asked a lot of questions. Chris wasn't much help. He just kept crying and saying something about the closet. We told them about the cat with no legs. They were interested in that. Did we have any enemies? Anyone that might want to hurt me or my family? Anyone that might want to scare us? The police couldn't find Henry in our house. There was no sign of anyone entering or exiting Henry's room. No fingerprints. Nothing. The Johnsons waited until the police were gone before they left. Chris was asleep by that point and Sean carried him out. They looked sad. The police started a search, but they didn't really know who or what to search for. I wish we had better answers for them. Vicki and I didn't talk at all that night, and neither of us slept. The scratching in the wall started up again, and Vicki heard it this time. I took note of the time, 1 a.m. It went on until at least 3, but by that point, my mind was fried. We laid next to the phone all Sunday, Vicky on the couch and me on the recliner, and didn't move until it was dark. We had Chinese food delivered, but neither of us really ate. I called the police station, but they didn't have any news. Vicky went to bed really early without saying goodnight. I don't blame her. I think she finally got some sleep. To be honest, I probably should have done the same, but instead I got out some old Photos from when Henry was a little baby. Vicky used to get multiples of every photo Henry printed so she could get copies to our parents. Little guy was so handsome. I took another stab at the Chinese, kept a little down, and fell asleep watching football highlights on the couch. I woke what must have been a couple hours later. Whatever channel I was watching had stopped broadcasting. I flipped off the TV and just laid in the darkness for a while. When your home gets broken into, it's never the same. It's not your house anymore. At least that's how I felt. I can't speak for Vicky. I didn't feel safe anymore. I kept thinking about Henry. However unsafe I felt, he must have felt 10 times worse. Little guy was probably so scared. How long had that scratching been going on? I held my breath. It was definitely scratching. Where was it coming from? I laid still, listening intently. The living room looked so alien at night. Light from the street lamps filtered in through the blinds and slashed everything with blades of light. The scratching stopped. I let out a long, ragged breath, but stopped short when I heard a doorknob turn somewhere down the hall. From my vantage point on the couch, I could see three doors in the hall. The door to Henry's room, which was wide open and dark at the moment, and a linen closet and the door to the master bedroom, which were both closed. There weren't any other doors down that way, and when neither of the closed doors opened up, I just assumed I must have been imagining it. I realized too late that there was another door down there, the door to Henry's closet. Just as the horrible realization came to my mind, I saw a dark shadow move into Henry's door. The flash of yellowed teeth stayed etched in my retinas when I shut my eyes tight. What a horrible smile, like a dog's grin like a goddamn dog's grin. Whatever it was moved painfully slow, lumbering, it was wheezing. With each step, its bones audibly creaked. I felt it stop next to the couch, but I kept my eyes shut tight and tried to act asleep. I don't know how it believed me, because my breathing gave it away. Or maybe it knew I was faking. Maybe it enjoyed my terror. It moved on and I heard it open the front door and throw something onto the porch. It stood in the living room for what felt like hours and then walked back into Henry's room and shut the closet door. When I heard the closet door shut and was sure I didn't hear any more movement, I crept down the hall and into my bedroom where Vicki was sleeping. I woke her up and whispered that someone was in the house. We escaped out the window, rushed to the neighbor's house, and called the police. They were there quickly, but didn't find anyone in the house. I asked if they found anything on the front porch. They said they did, but they wouldn't tell us what it was. They didn't need to. Next up, Dark at Night. It had been three weeks since the stars went out in the sky, when Elizabeth Lambert got a knock at her door. It was two well-dressed men there to take her mother away. No one could explain where the stars had gone. Those great balls of gas thousands of light-years in every direction had, just one day, ceased to shine. The first reports of it were in the skies over Australia a point at first, in the night sky. All of four visible stars were gone by that point, and it was only a single astronomer at a telescope deep in the outback that noticed. Within several hours, the entire sky over the whole of Australia had gone dark, except for the moon. By the time night fell in Milwaukee, where Elizabeth lived with her elderly mother, there were no more stars to be seen. During the first couple of days, there was a flurry of speculation. How and why were the most popular questions to answer? The most popular theory, and the most obvious, was that the stars, of course, were just being blocked by something, like the clouds on an overcast night. The moon was still visible, though, and when telescopes trained their sights into the void of space, it wasn't that their view was blocked. It was that the stars simply weren't there. This set off a panic, as the obvious next event in every worrier's mind was that our sun would be next. But three weeks later, the sun was still rising in the east and setting in the west. The well-dressed men had come because Elizabeth called them. She called them because strange things had been happening to her mother in the wake of the stars' disappearance and a report on the news insisted people call a specific number if those things started happening to those around them. The men were from some government agency, she assumed, but now that they were here in her home, and they were refusing the kindnesses that Elizabeth was offering them, like juice and cookies, she was having second thoughts. They did not seem to have her mother's best interests in mind. On the night the stars went out, Elizabeth found her mother, whose name was Patricia, collapsed in the bathtub. Patricia had been taking a shower, and when the shower had lasted 30 minutes, and Elizabeth called in to check on her, and when Patricia didn't answer, Elizabeth barged in. She pulled her mother out of the tub and checked her breathing, which she was, and tried to rouse her, which she wouldn't. Then she dried her with a towel while waiting for the paramedics to arrive. When they did, They placed her on a stretcher and loaded her into the back of an ambulance and elizabeth jumped in after and they drove to the hospital this was an unusual event for patricia elizabeth told the doctor when he had finally made time to talk to her her mother was strong she said spry never needed any help elizabeth never had to worry about her patricia was her own woman and though yes she lived with elizabeth it wasn't for health reasons, but for financial reasons. Speaking of financials, she said to the doctor, this hospital bill was really going to set them back. Patricia came to in a couple of hours, bruised but with no recollection of what had happened. When Elizabeth and Patricia arrived home late in the night and turned on the television to find constant news of missing stars, Patricia sat, eyes glued to the thing for the next eight hours. Patricia woke her daughter Elizabeth at just before 2 a.m., three nights after she had fainted in the shower. Elizabeth, who had to rise early at 5 a.m. in order to beat traffic and get to work at 7 a.m., was annoyed at her mother, to say the least. And when Patricia had explained to her why she was waking her at such an hour, Elizabeth went from merely annoyed to angry. Feel my fingernails, Patricia said, a strange request of her daughter. What? My fingernails. Feel them, Patricia said again, extending her hands toward Elizabeth. Elizabeth took her mother's hands in her own and ran her fingertips over her mother's fingernails. She could feel nothing out of the ordinary and said so. Then she rolled over and asked Patricia to go back to sleep. You don't think they feel harder? Patricia asked. Harder? Elizabeth parroted back. Yeah. And rougher, maybe? Patricia asked. No. Please go back to bed, Elizabeth said. I'm begging you now, Ma. Okay, okay. I just thought it was strange, she said, standing up from the side of the bed. Night, Lizzie, Patricia said to her daughter. Night, Ma. Elizabeth heard her mother walk out of the room, close the door behind her, and fell back asleep. When Elizabeth woke the next morning, Patricia was already up, or more accurately, had never gone to sleep, and was in the living room watching news coverage of the celestial disappearance. Can you believe it? It's like they just switched off like so many light bulbs, Patricia said. No ma, I couldn't believe it yesterday and I can't believe it now. You're going to drive yourself crazy with that stuff. When they find anything out, we'll know, Elizabeth said. She looked up from making her lunch and noticed Patricia on the couch in the living room, running her fingertips over her fingernails while she watched. "'What's wrong with your fingers, Ma?' Elizabeth asked. "'Told you already,' Patricia said. "'Let me see again,' Elizabeth said, crossing the room to her mother's side. She took Patricia's hand and looked at her fingernails. She admitted now that they did seem rather rough. "'Huh.' Well, if it doesn't get better, we'll make you a doctor's appointment, okay? Elizabeth said. Not going to the doctor, Patricia said. Just spent a fortune going to the hospital. We'll see, Elizabeth said. She finished packing her lunch and left for work, leaving her mother on the couch and the news about starless skies on the television. At dinner time, there was no coaxing Patricia away from the television and its 24-hour news about the disappearance. So Elizabeth joined her on the couch. A news anchor on one of those 24-hour news stations was interviewing another scientist about possible causes of the vanishing stars, and they would occasionally cut away to shots of black sky, sometimes punctuated by a tree or building in the foreground for comparison's sake. About a minute into the interview, after they had rehashed the facts that everyone knew about the odd event for the hundredth time, The news anchor asked the scientist about some new information that had just come out. It had just been revealed, in a news conference by some agency or other, that something else had occurred to go along with the disappearance. Well, yes, the scientist explained, that's correct. It wasn't obvious in the first couple days after the event, capital E, you know, that's what we who have been studying it have come to call it, the event, that refers to, specifically, what happened to the stars. They disappeared, the news anchor reiterated. Sure, yes, for lack of a better explanation at the moment, the scientist responded. And at the same time as the event, capital E, and again, this wasn't obvious until we started looking at all the data being sent from all the stations all around the world, something that we've come to call the anomaly occurred. And the anomaly is what Chairman Scott's just talked about in his press conference? Yes. So, in the wake of the event, We start to see, all over the globe, signs of the anomaly. And what the anomaly is, well, we don't know where it came from, and this is the strangest thing, but it seems to be coming from everywhere at once, all directions. But what it is, or was, is a percussive wave of radiation. Radiation? Like from nuclear waste? the anchor asked. No, no. I mean, technically, but much less dangerous, and in much lower amounts, he said. And when you say it came from everywhere at once? The anchor asked, pressing the scientist to go on. Yes, so that night, we saw the lights go out in the sky, and then, in the hours that follow, we see this wave of radiation converge on Earth from all directions. Imagine you're in a completely still pool of water, standing just in the middle. And then, how many people are in your family? The scientist asked. Well, my husband, my three kids, and our dog, the anchor said. Okay, so you're in the completely still pool, smack in the center, and everyone in your whole family, even the dog, jumps in the pool at the same time from different angles, and the wave that each individual member of your family makes hits you at the same time, do you understand? He asked. Yeah, I see what you mean, the anchor responded. It was like that, except from an infinite number of people jumping into the cosmic pool from infinite angles. Elizabeth was brushing her teeth that night when she thought of her mother's fingers again. Patricia had been on the couch all night, Elizabeth being unable to coax her away from the television, and so Elizabeth found her there, now. How are your fingers, Ma? Elizabeth asked, mouth full of toothpaste. Oh, I don't know, she said, and held out her hand without looking away from the television. Elizabeth rolled her eyes and took a cursory glance at the tips of Patricia's fingers, but soon had put her toothbrush on the side table and was expecting them more closely. The nails were darker now, and the discoloration had spread to the entire tip of each of Patricia's fingers and thumbs. What's more, Patricia was right. Her fingernails were getting harder, but it wasn't just the fingernails. The entire tip of each of her mother's fingers was hardening, rough and scaling over, like each was calloused through years of manual labor. Oh, Ma, this is getting real bad. It's like a rash or something, does it itch? No, Patricia responded, pulling her fingers away. Well, we'll see how it looks in the morning, but if it's worse or even the same, I'm going to get you in somewhere to get it looked at, okay, Ma? Eh? Yeah, sure, Patricia responded. You going to bed? Elizabeth asked. No, not yet, Patricia said. All right, but don't stay up too late, okay? Yeah, sure, I won't, Patricia said, as Elizabeth turned and went to bed. It was the groaning from the backyard that woke Elizabeth several hours later, in the dead of night. The back door was open when she went to investigate. Out in the yard, on the edge of the light spilling out from the open door, was Patricia, in her robe, kneeling on the damp grass. Elizabeth hurried out into the cold air to the edge of the paved patio and whispered for her mother. Patricia's head was thrown backwards, nearly horizontal to the ground. Her eyes bulged staring into the empty sky. Her mouth was wide open, struggling against itself while Patricia groaned into the silent night. Come on, Mom, Elizabeth said. Let's get you back inside. Elizabeth stepped out into the cool lawn, over to Patricia's side, and put her hand on her mother's shoulder. Patricia's eyes rolled in Elizabeth's direction. She groaned louder at the sight of her daughter. Elizabeth tried to shake some sense into her mother, literally, but Patricia's eyes only bulged in her head and the groaning continued. Elizabeth tried to help her mother to her feet, but found she couldn't even drag her up against her will. Patricia's arms were extended straight down at her sides, and Elizabeth, at first, thought that her mother had handfuls of grass in each hand and were using them as leverage to stay in place. But when Elizabeth had grabbed Patricia's hand to pry the grass out of her fingers, she found the ground before she found anything else. Her mother had forced her hands down into the soft soil, up to her wrists. Ma, what are you doing? Elizabeth asked. And her mother rolled her eyes back skyward. Let go of the dirt, Ma. Elizabeth tugged on Patricia's arm, but she was not about to give up. She remained staring skyward and groaning heavily until Elizabeth had managed to dig each of her mother's hands out. Once back inside, Elizabeth ran her mother's hands under the tap and found most of the dirt wouldn't wash off. Elizabeth had laid Patricia down on the couch and tried rousing her out of whatever trance she was in, but Patricia wouldn't respond to any of Elizabeth's questions except to moan. It seemed to Elizabeth that Patricia was in some amount of pain, but she couldn't figure out how much or where. Patricia's hands were what concerned Elizabeth the most. Covered in dirt that wouldn't wash off, they felt as though they were hardening into some mangled chitin, and what's more, they appeared to be growing larger. They seemed a full inch longer than her mom's fingers usually were. The nail on each finger had grown out of control, wrapping around the entirety of the fingertip, And sharpening to a point. Probably how Patricia found it so easy to bury each hand in the cold soil. By the morning, Patricia's fingers had grown another inch and hardened completely. Some horrible bone condition or an immune system run amok, Elizabeth thought. She'd seen this sort of thing on TV before. Patricia laid still on the couch, hardly moving but moaning with more intensity, and Elizabeth thought it best to take another trip to the hospital. We've been seeing this a lot, the nurse said once Elizabeth and Patricia finally got into the emergency room. A lot the last couple days, I mean. Really? What is it? Elizabeth asked. The nurse shook his head. We don't know. We've never seen it before. No one has, he said. I mean, can't you call around to other doctors or hospitals? Don't you guys share information? Elizabeth asked. No, you don't understand, the nurse said. No one has seen this. Ever. Elizabeth didn't believe him, but that didn't matter. That was the only answer she was going to get. The nurse looked over at Patricia, writhing on the nearby bed. Look, he said. I can get the doctor to prescribe some painkillers. Enough to knock her out until someone somewhere figures out what this is. That's all we've been able to do. The men followed just behind Elizabeth as she led them through the hall, uncomfortably close. More than once on that short trip down the hallway, Elizabeth wanted to turn to the men and ask them to back away from her, but that would prolong this already excruciating event, and so she tolerated their breath on her neck. It had been a week since the last hospital visit, only seven days. Seven days and everything looked different about the event and the anomaly. Seven days and those that were affected, which is what they started calling people like Elizabeth's mother, were beyond hope. Before they had even arrived at Patricia's bedroom door, the sounds were audible. Those moans but not moans that had been keeping Elizabeth up for nights on end. Elizabeth, here with her guests, turned to them and found them examining the many locks she had attached to the door. The locks designed to keep her mother inside her room, the locks she attached five days ago at the advice of someone on the television, when only Patricia's arms and legs were affected. Are you surprised by all the locks? Elizabeth asked. No, one of the men said. There are usually more, the other said. Elizabeth took a key ring out of her pocket and set to work unlocking the eight locks one at a time. She took her time, dreading the moment she would open the door and let the men into her mother's room. The men became impatient, crowding into her until she was pushing back against them, just to unlock the last few latches. The last padlock slipped out of her fingers and clattered to the floor, and when she bent down to pick it up, one of the men reached out and grabbed the knob of the bedroom door, opening right into Elizabeth's head with a force that sent her staggering backwards several steps. Elizabeth regained her composure and straightened up, blinking a few times to bring her blurry vision from the bump on the head back into focus. When she had, she saw the men hadn't moved from their spot just inside the bedroom. Instead, they stood staring into the dark room. She creeped into the doorway and looked past the men to her mother. Or, more precisely, what her mother had become moaning in agony on the bed, on the walls, and on the ceiling. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both The Cat with No Legs and Dark at Night, were written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin JustinBusky. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Ursa Major, and to Orion's Belt. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Phantom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the other great shows. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Busky. Stay out of the shadows.
1: Hello i'm insane mike the host of attack of the killer podcast and i'm here to tell you about our show attack of the killer podcast is about a group of friends who openly discuss horror movies it is a very fun show and we discuss various horror topics you'll laugh you'll cry you may even learn a thing or two here's what the critics are saying about attack of the killer podcast brutal evil ghastly beyond belief so check out our show at attack of the killer podcast.com or stitcher.com or even at the phantom podcast network at downrightcreepy.com you can also follow us on facebook at attack of the killer podcast and on twitter at aotkp thank you